You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. We're really delighted to have as our guest today Steve Burrell. Steve is a legend in the biotechnology industry, both here in the Bay Area and worldwide. He started building that legend as a member of the um, the audit team of Arthur Young back in the days when many public accountants thought that you only wanted to audit companies that were large Fortune 500. Steve had a vision that biotechnology was an industry that was going to explode and really make a difference in the world and he led the way in working with what were then fledgling startups. Teeny tiny companies with names like Genentech and Alza that many of the partners back east scratched their heads and wondered why are we auditing little companies like that, but Steve knew that biotechnology was going to change the world in his lifetime and in ours, got involved early and has most of the CEOs in the life sciences industry as well as big pharma, biotech and increasing me medical devices as well, coming to him for advice because he's been in the industry for a long time and he has a very deep sense of what the, the issues are, whether they be technological, business, financial and other. And so, Steve, we're delighted to have you back, not, not uh, to, to make uh, light of the second and even more important part of his career. After leaving Arthur Young, he founded a company called Burrell & Company that he's going to tell you a little bit about. I won't go into long introductions there, but it's one of the premier institutions, merchant banks, and sources of financing for uh, life sciences, biotech, and pharmaceutical companies worldwide. Steve, we're delighted to have you here at Stanford, and welcome. Thank you. So I give about uh, 100 to 150 presentations a year. And so the real question is, what's relevant to you and how can I make this relevant? And the thing I don't do very much is talk about myself. I usually talk about the industry and industries around me or what makes companies succeed. Um, but this is one where I think part of what you're trying to do is understand the people factor and what um, has succeeded in my life. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about that. To um, add to Tom's stuff, I'm going to uh, explore this in a minute with you, but I have, um, I sit on about a dozen boards. I'm on about 20 nonprofit boards. I've been involved in the growth of the biotech industry from its inception, basically here in the Bay Area in the late 60s. So I passed my uh, 40th anniversary of being involved in the high growth, high tech area. 80% of the Silicon Valley was my client at one time, so I helped the guys get Apple and Intel and exciting companies like that started. I was close to Bill Gates in the start of what became uh, Microsoft. Um, in the life sciences world, as Tom said, I was very involved with the start of ALS in 68. I helped Genentech get started. I helped Amgem get started in most of the major companies in, the, in that space and have literally grown up in that. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that um, as we go through the day. I've got two things to tell you uh, that are quite different. One is a little bit of my story um, because there might be some interesting lessons for all of you. And the second is uh, what's going on in this industry and why what's going on in the industry is both relevant to the world and relevant to entrepreneurial opportunities. And I'll, you can interrupt me at any time. I know your format is I talk for a while and then you ask questions, but it may be much more relevant to ask questions and I'll just answer them. So if you interrupt me, that's fine. I won't, I won't lose my place. My company, Burl & Company, I started January 1, 94, so we're now in our, finished our 13th year. Um, we are a San Francisco-based uh, life sciences merchant bank. 
What that means is that we are one of the largest venture capital funds in the world where we have a billion dollars for investment in life science companies and own some 60 companies today. We have a merchant banking operation, which is a transactional business where we do M&A and partnering and strategic relationships uh, between companies. So we're an investment banker of transactions. Historically, we haven't done financings for companies. So if you come to me and say, Steve, will you help me raise 5 or 10 or $20 million? We'll say no to that. The reason we say no to that is we have a billion dollars and we'll rather put our own money in. And if we don't put our own money in, the first thing people will say is, well, Steve, why are you trying to raise money for this company if you won't put your own money in? So we've historically not raised money for a fee, but we've done transactional work for that. And then thirdly, we have a media business where we have a whole series of conferences and publications. Um, and I write the Bible for the industry, and I've written that for 20 years, a book on the biotech industry. And I'd be glad to give you copies of that. Uh, if you're interested. But I thought where, where I'd start is a little bit about who I am and what I, what I did that got me here since you're thinking about entrepreneurship and I think there are some interesting maybe lessons to be learned and, and some insight. Um, 1966, I came out here um, to California because it was the furthest I could get away from my parents. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, in Wisconsin. My dad was a hotshot in Wisconsin, and as I grew up, every place I went, people said, oh, you're George's boy, and then they would talk about my dad, and so I figured, well, the best thing to do is to get as far away from that, so nobody's ever heard of my dad. He was a CPA, ran the biggest CPA firm in the state of Wisconsin. My grandfather was the first CPA in the state of Wisconsin, and so I Actually, my wife is a CPA, I have a CPA, and three of my four sons are CPAs, so the gene ran kind of deep in my family. But anyway, I wanted to get out of my, my father's shadow, and so I went to New York, and I looked around, I came to California, decided San Francisco was a lot nicer place to work than New York, and started as a rookie um, at then Arthur Young, June 20th, 1966. I was the youngest partner in the history of Ernst & Young, Arthur Young, Ernst & Young as we now call it, Arthur Young at the time. Um, and I built a practice for them that was a $2.5 billion practice, had 25,000 people working for me, uh, and left that after just short of 30 years to start what became Berlin Company. Um, it may not seem interesting to you to start your career in a large then public accounting firm or a large professional services firm, but for me, it was a chance to see a whole array of businesses um, and grow with them. And what I realized relatively early in my career were, was that I had an enormous passion to work with companies that were going to change the world. And I also realized that I couldn't run up and down the Silicon Valley and open every garage and say, is there a Hewlett Packard in there? And so what I had to do was find a way for all of those companies that were going to be great companies to find me because I couldn't go and open up enough garage doors and tell them I was a smart, interesting guy and they should work with me. I had to have them find me. So I figured if you're an entrepreneur and you're sitting in the, in the Hewlett Packard garage and you're gonna come out, where's the first place you're gonna go? And I realized you're either gonna go to a lawyer because you need some legal advice about formation. You might go to a venture capitalist because you need capital, or you might go to another entrepreneur that's been successful and say, hey, when you got started, how did you do that? And I wanted all three of those people, regardless of where they went, to say, hey, you know who you ought to talk to? You ought to talk to that guy, Steve Burrell, because he could be helpful to you. So that's how I did it. I basically built relationships with those three constituencies of people and then got all those people coming to you. 
And interesting enough, there aren't a lot of people who think that accountants are kind of important in the equation. But what was interesting is that as companies, they all needed an accountant, A, that was kind of something they needed to have, and B, they needed an accountant who could think in their language, think about their businesses, think about their problems, not think about the problems of accounting or tax or information systems or all the things that we did at Ernst & Young, but to actually think in the context of the business problems those companies had. So everybody needed an accountant, and people would say, well, why don't you talk to Burl? He's different than all the rest of those people. And so we had, in Ernst & Young, a commodity business. There were, at that time, eight major firms. There are now four major firms. And they were largely undifferentiated. But what I realized is if I really understood what was going on in an industry better than anybody in the industry, everybody would come to me because I could both ply my trade, but I could be an expert to them in their industry. And you have to remember that if you start your company today and grow your company up, you're going to grow it up once. I've done hundreds of IPOs. I've done thousands of startups. And so I've been through this thing that you're going to go through a lot. And that was my differentiation. <clears throat> when I was a young guy, I was going to church one Sunday. My father would drive me, drop me off at church, go to the office, pick me up two hours later, three hours later on his way home. And... I would go to church and goof around, and he'd go to the office. When I was coming uh, home one Sunday, I said to my dad, I said, why do you go to the office every Sunday? And he said, I love what I do, and it's the most fun I have all week. And I thought about that, and so one of the things that I would encourage you to do is to follow your passion. Everybody has a passion, and I think you've got to follow it. I actually love what I'm doing today. And so passion has a lot to do with the success I had. I had extraordinary passion. When you have a lot of passion, you're willing to get up. I go into the office between 4 and 5 every morning, sometimes at 3.30 in the morning. I'm generally there till 7 or 8 at night. Most people would think I'm nuts, but I like what I do. And there's a lot of time between 3 and 4 in the morning and 8 in the morning when the rest of the world wakes up that I can do what I'm doing. So one lesson I would say is to have a fair amount of, of passion for what you're doing, whatever it is. Secondly, in the accounting business or in the business I was in at Ernst & Young, technical knowledge was important. You had to understand all of those rules and what it was and how that system worked. But what I realized was you had to understand that not in the context of that. People would stipulate I was good at that. They wanted to know what I knew about their industry. So spend time understanding the industry around whatever you're doing. That's where your expertise really is. And so it isn't necessarily reading the Wall Street Journal, although that may be important, but it may be reading the technology trade press. I used to go to all these scientific seminars where all my Nobel laureate friends were talking about it. People had no reason to understand why I was there, but I was continually absorbing it. And several years ago, I was honored by the Scientific American as one of the top 50 scientists in the world, which is pretty amazing for a guy who went through college to avoid ever taking any science. And so I allowed myself to get involved and really understanding the industry that I was involved with, not just uh, my own technical knowledge. Obviously, hard work, tenacity, thinking out of the box, all attributes that were clearly important. And as Tom said in his introduction, one of the really interesting things in um, building what became one of the dominant firms was to change the model. So in the service business that I was in, the model was you go and you work with General Motors or General Electric or these big companies because they have the capacity to 
to pay you a lot more fees. We were in the fee-based business, more fees, more profits. And so the, if you were going to sell to General Motors and you could get a million or $2 million assignment, that seemed to make a lot more sense to everybody than helping Alza or Intel or Genentech or Amgen get started. But I took this big, stodgy accounting firm and I convinced them, not through rhetoric, but through action, that we could actually make a whole lot more money by growing our share of the Fortune 500 than trying to get the Fortune 500 to change. And during my career there, we became the number one firm in the world by growing companies as opposed to doing it. And I did that with a pricing model that basically gave it away for free in year one. So here are the companies that are least able to pay, getting the majority of our time for free, as opposed to the biggest companies that had the most ability to pay that we were historically oriented around. And the difference was I could give them away the services for free in year one, maybe charge them 50% of standard fees in year two, charge them 80% of standard fees in year three, 120% of standard year fees in year four, but I was giving away five or $10,000 of fees in year one. I was collecting half of $50,000 of fees in year two. I was collecting 90% of a million dollars of fees in year three. And I got market share where absolutely everybody came to me. So I did things very differently and I used a very different pricing model to build a very, very successful practice. The other thing that happened in that that was interesting is when you're sitting at the dining room table helping the guys write the business plan for Genentech and when Bobby Swanson was pulling Genentech together, he came to me for lunch one day and he said, Steve, what do you think about this guy, Herb Boyer, who was ultimately the scientist that made Genentech happen? And I helped him write the business plan. The interesting thing about that is now, some 35 years later, they still have enormous loyalty to Ernst & Young because we, were, we Ernst & Young at the time, was there at the beginning. So you become price insensitive. The clients became price insensitive later when everybody else said, well, we can help you. And they said, well, thank you. We're working with those guys. And then finally, I would tell you a very interesting thing I learned about that was at the time, if you looked at the big service firms around the world, they all looked the same. They did some cities, they did some hospitals, they did some profits, they did some nonprofits, they did some high tech. They all looked the same. And I said, we had to fire some clients. I said, if we want to have capacity to work on the high tech, high growth stuff, when somebody calls, we need to say, yes, we have room. We can't say we're too busy, we'll do it next summer. And so we literally fired clients in paying clients in other areas so we had the capacity to concentrate on what we wanted to do. And therefore, we built a very, very um, successful practice. And so generally, I would tell you that if you, people always say you need to focus, and what they think about when they say focus is that they use their incremental time to focus on what they need to do. You don't have any incremental time. So you have to create some capacity to have time to do what you did. And in the end, I built a $2.5 billion business for them. We had 80% of the high-tech business in the world and 80-some percent of the life sciences business. Pretty successful thing. Now, I'm going to digress for a minute and talk about the life sciences business. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about my career in a minute. But if you and I go out today to start a biotech company, and we're starting lots of them here in the Bay Area, there's some things that you've got to understand that are different in starting a biotech company than any other company in the world. So if you start a semiconductor company, or you start a software company, or you start somebody to compete with Starbucks, whatever that is, the customer will decide whether you succeed. Because if you make one, you get it to a customer, he likes it, 
somebody else will buy one, you begin to build a revenue base, you begin to build some market share, you can ultimately build profitability. In my business, in the biotech business, we may not see that customer for a decade, maybe 15 years, that customer being a patient. And so how are you going to get there? So you and I want to start a company today, but our customer is 15 years from now or 10 years from now. So the, the fact is that you're going to live off a capital base that you and I are going to have to develop by selling the hopes and dreams and passion we have about what we're going to do because the customer may not be there for 10 or 15 years, which means profitability may not be there. So we're facing an industry that has to raise capital for maybe a decade. Now, interestingly, I'll show you in a minute, in our world of life sciences, on average, it costs you a billion dollars to get a product to market, per end. That doesn't mean every product costs a billion dollars. But you come and knock on my door today and say, Steve, I want five or 10 or 15 or $20 million to start my company. I'll be glad to give you five or 10 or $20 million to start your company. The question I'm asking isn't, do you get my five or 10? The question is, where's the next billion come from? And so one lesson to be learned in the life sciences is to understand the capital markets and to understand the source of capital has an agenda and it's all very different. Second thing I think you have to recognize about our world is that no product in our world will ever see that customer till a regulator says yes. And so you've got to get through that regulatory gate to get to the marketplace. FDA, USDA, EPA, you name it, some regulatory agency, some place in the world will be between you and the customer. You have to understand that regulatory barrier. Third thing I think you need to understand about the healthcare products world that we're in is that most of the products that we're going to bring, if not 100% of the products we're going to bring to the market, increase the cost to the system. Which is to say we're finding a way to treat something today that historically hasn't been treated and therefore the system is going to have a net cost increase, not a net cost decrease. And so you'd love to come into markets where the cost and benefit of your product is all in the same direction. We're actually going to improve, I mean increase, the cost of healthcare by what we're doing. Now hopefully over time we can bring the cost of healthcare down. But if I use a simple story and take AIDS, for example, 20, 25 years ago if I, if I had AIDS in San Francisco, I was dead in two or three years. Today we have nucleoside analogs, we have protease inhibitors, we have lots of things. We can, we can titrate viral load and we can manage AIDS so that other things will kill you before your AIDS kills you. Now that's great if you and I have AIDS, but it's expensive for the system. And so we've discovered great cures for diseases today and a dead patient is a cheap patient. Ugly as it sounds. So we've, we're in a business where we're increasing the cost of healthcare. Now, part of the, in part of my life, I am the leading lobbyist in the country for getting the NIH their budget. So the NIH, Sir Huni has a $30 billion budget. I'm the guy that goes to Washington, gets him his $30 billion. So when I argue with Congress, they say, Steve, we're spending $30 billion on medical research and you're increasing the cost of the healthcare system. Why do I want to do that? Tough issues. So be aware that in the life sciences world, our products, while we're claiming that they have enormous kind of patient benefit, may in fact increase the cost to the system. And then finally, I would tell you two other things. One is in my business, there's a delinking between the patient who benefits from the drugs, the doctor who by and large prescribes the drugs, and the payor. 
That is to say, who pays for it? So your government, if you're Medicare or Medicaid, the insurance company or your employer is by and large paying for your health care. You may have a little copay, but by and large, somebody else is paying for your health care. So when my companies sell the product, be aware that they've got to get the patient to want to use it. They've got to get the doctor to want to prescribe it, and they've got to get a payer to want to pay for it. And those are three different universes. So I can't think of another business in the world where you have delinked the elements of your sale. Critically important to understand in our business. And finally, I think it's important to understand that if you start a biotech or biomedical or life sciences company today, wherever you are, you're a global company from the day you get started. That is to say, you and I right now in this class start a company, and we're going to compete with big and small companies all over the world. We can go any place in the world and access science. So we can get it from here at Stanford. We can get it at UCSF where I teach. You can get it from Tokyo U. You can get it in Bangalore or Bangladesh. So you can get science anywhere in the world. The IP issues, intellectual property issues, protecting that science are global issues. Capital like mine is ubiquitous. I will invest in companies any place in the world where I think I can get the best return. So most of our Bay Area venture capitalists are fairly parochial. They want to do deals here. I happen to do deals all over the world. So in the 65 companies we own, seven of them are in Europe. We're doing lots of work in Malaysia, China, and India today, but we'll invest all over the world. So capital, if you will, is global. Diseases know no borders. So if you're curing cancer or you're curing AIDS, those aren't defined by borders. People, like me, are mobile. We're all over the world all the time. And communication is instantaneous on our Blackberries or on our phones. So you and I can start a little company today here in Menlo Park, here at Stanford. And the minute we start that company, we're competing all over the world for all of the assets that we need to do that. And so globality in my industry doesn't happen because you made some and you did it in this area and then you did it in the state and then you did it in the U.S. and then you began to think about international operations. Our job is that we're global from day one. So I think as I go on here, it's helpful to remember a few basic attributes of the life sciences business that differentiate us from all of the other technology that you may see uh, here in the Silicon Valley. Now, I started Berlin Company January 194, and I violated probably the first tenet of business, which is I never wrote a business plan. So if you ask me when I started Berlin Company what I expected to do, I had no clue. And not only did I have no business plan then, but I have no business plan today. So while I teach all about that, we don't really operate that. So I started on the basis that I thought it would be more fun to just be a professional director. So what I was going to do is take my expertise and my network, and I was just going to sit on a bunch of boards, and I thought I could better correlate my income. I was a highly paid partner, fifth highest paid partner in Ernst & Young, so I was successful at Left a very high paying job with enormous amount of security for nothing. I had no clients, I had no business, and I had no business plan. But I figured somebody would want me as a director. So what do you do when you become a director for a bunch of companies other than give them advice and counsel? Well, you try and help them do some deals. So I backed into being in the partnering and the M&A business because that's what the companies needed me to do for them. 
So at that time, my, my business model was kind of interesting. I figured if I could get people to pay me a $10,000 a month retainer and they would give me some equity, some options or other things, that I could build a successful career. So I got a dozen companies to pay me $10,000 a month. That was about a million dollars. And I figured that's not a bad way to start. I wish I'd stayed there, by the way. I was making more money. But the early business was to basically figure out how to help a handful of companies do what they were doing. But I also realized that intellectual capital was an important part of what I did. So I also started actually my conference and publishing business, some of which I brought from Ernst & Young with me, and that was the foundation of a Berlin company in 94. I had a partner at the time named Fred Craves who we parted company part, part, partly along the way after a couple of years because his ethics and value proposition and values were quite different than mine. And I think if you look at lots of financial service companies that get started, you'll see that there's a lot of change in people along the way. And I'd say the lesson to be learned is trying to find somebody that shares the same values that you share will ultimately be important. My mother actually said an interesting thing. When I told her I was leaving, my mother's now dead, but I told her I was leaving Ernst & Young and I started this. A, she thought I was nuts. And B, she said to me, how well do you know this guy? Turns out I didn't know him very well, and it was pretty savvy advice. Burl 2.0, which started about four years later, was <clears throat> the result of a dinner I had with a CEO of Bayer. Bayer, as we Americans call it, Bayer is a big German uh, company, one of the biggest pharmaceutical chemical companies in the world. Aspirin is their big product. Um, and I said, what do you know about innovation? So this is CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world. Kind of here I was kind of arrogantly saying, what do you know about innovation? He said, oh, Steve, I know everything about innovation. I said, well, tell me about innovation. Tell me how you do innovation. He said, well, we read patents. We go to conferences. We hang out in the major universities of the world. We spend 23% of the sales dollar in R&D. He said, if there's anything we know, anything about innovation, we know about it. I said, well, what happens if three of my friends from Stanford and I start a company? What's the first thing we do? He said, I don't know. And I said, well, it isn't to run to you. I said, what we're going to do is we're going to run up and down Sand Hill Road. We're going to get some capital. We're going to spend two or three years developing something. And then we're going to come and knock on your door in year three, four, and five and say, we built something of value. How about doing a deal? And he says, okay. And I said, tell you what. You give me 25 million bucks, and I'll give you a window into that world. I'll give you a window into the world that I live in. And I converted that into $300 million. And so I backed into being a venture capitalist. Never planned to be a venture capitalist. Couldn't spell venture capital, even though most of my friends were VCs. And I got a whole bunch of big companies, well-known names, to give me $25 million each, and I had a venture capital business. So that was kind of Burl 2.0. I realized couple years later that if you're really serious, and we were by then one of the dominant VCs in the life sciences space, that if I had to kind of go like Butch Cassidy did in robbing the banks, you have to go where the money is. The money really isn't in the big corporations. The money is ultimately in um, the big institutional funds. So then I raised an institutional fund with big retirement systems, North Carolina retirement system, Scottish Widows, Northwestern Mutual Life, and people like that. Today we have a, just short of a billion dollars in our venture capital business. And we've expanded that to include operations in China and India and Malaysia and elsewhere. I took my transactional business and I converted it last year into a broker dealer to kind of make us somewhat legitimate and to enable us to expand our franchise 
And then I added a joint venture partner on my media business and joined forces with the largest media business in the world. Finally, I would tell you in building my business, where we're going with our business is we basically are the largest, one of the largest investors in the world in private, that is venture capital funded companies. We're going to add closed end funds or hedge funds, you might call it, to invest in public equities, not just private equities. We're going to expand our merchant banking franchise. We are going to fund companies as a living, notwithstanding all the money that we have. We're doing significantly more work in the Middle East and other parts of the world, and we're even considering whether it might be attractive as an entity to go public. The big problem with that is both value and what do I, what do, I do with the money. And so if somebody gives you 100 or 200 million bucks, I don't have a good answer to how I'm going to use that money, so I'm not sure that's a good idea. But So that's a little bit about the companies that I built um, and my personal um, evolution, if you will. So we have a big business today, as I said, with lots of meetings and conferences and an extended business. Our business, by the way, our revenues are about $20 million in the venture capital business. Our revenues are 10 to $20 million in the um, merchant banking business, and we have a 5 to $10 million business in the media business, so we have a decent-sized business today. What do I think you should take from my personal success? One is industry knowledge is critically important. Secondly, I think you have to differentiate information from insight. You can go on the net, you can get tons of information. The value proposition is I've got some insight. I can interpret that, I can tell people what it means. Everybody wants to know what I think is gonna happen next year because of what I know. And so we're in the insight business. We publish a lot of stuff that's information, but the insight is the value part of it. You have to constantly challenge yourself to generate knowledge um, and I think in my particular case, I see the world very much on a half full, not half empty. One of my favorite definitions of an entrepreneur is that they're too naive to see the barriers that everybody else sees, so they ignore them and they just go through them. I was probably too naive in starting my business to understand all the reasons I shouldn't do that, so I just went ahead and did it. And you deal with the problems as you come along. So I think kind of a healthy, um, aggressive attitude towards uh, trying to build something of value as opposed to letting all the people tell you the reasons it won't work is important. A couple of quick things on our venture business, what I think makes our venture business successful. One is that we not only have this industry knowledge, but everybody wants us to look at their deals. So we have a robust inbox. We see something in excess of 100 deals a month. We only invest in less than one of those 100 deals a month, so we have to process a lot of stuff. Um, but we spend most of our time trying to figure out, as a hockey analogy, is not where the puck is, but where the puck is going to be. So the question you're trying to deal with is, what are the markets of tomorrow? If it's going to take us a decade to get to that customer, you don't ask yourself, where, where, where is the medical healthcare system today? You say, where is it tomorrow? What is a healthcare system going to look like circa 2015? And how do I build products and services and companies that are going to be relevant in 2015? Most of you take a snapshot of the world today, you build products for today. We've got to build products for a different marketplace, so you have to use your insight and think about where that marketplace is and then be there. People talk a lot in entrepreneurial schools about luck. Luck is taking advantage of the opportunities you have. I got a phone call two Sundays ago. I was watching the Duke game. I have a son at Duke, and I was enjoying the Duke basketball game. And in the middle of that, I get a call from a guy who wants to do a very interesting transaction. Most people would have been annoyed by that. That was an enormous opportunity. We take advantage of that. 
Some might say it was a lucky call. I'd say it's recognizing an opportunity and taking advantage. Everybody has opportunities. The difference is some people actually take advantage of that. Networks are important. I've done an enormous amount to help people for decades. People call me all the time and say, Steve, 15 years ago you told me this and made a difference in my life. You never know who may be important to you. So build those networks, keep those networks active and work on it. Do different things. Don't try and do what everybody else is doing. And the interesting thing about our venture business is that when you're a venture capitalist, you not only have to be right, but you have to be right in a certain period of time. So we're big players in the personalized medicine business today. There's no question personalized medicine is, is going to change medicine. That isn't the question. The question is, are the investments I make today going to pay off at the return I've got to generate in the next two years or the next three years? So it isn't a matter of being smart and investing in the great companies. If I'm off by a year or two, my IRR is killed. So I've got to, I've got to be right, but I've also got to be right in a time frame. And so if you do those things well, I think you can be successful in the venture business. Our merchant banking business, I think being successful has a lot to do with selecting what you want to do. When I started to build this business, I was willing to do lots of things that in retrospect, they paid us a lot of fees, but we never got them over the goal line. In the transactional business, the issue isn't how many things do you get started, but how many things do you get done. So we had to reverse our process. We actually had to do due diligence at an enormous level on our nickel free before we accept an engagement. Because when you're trying to do a deal between two companies, what you find out in the last minute, just before the deal gets signed in your last element of due diligence, that you don't actually have the IP that you thought they had, or they didn't really finish that clinical trial, or they got some bad data. Now, if you've worked a year on that transaction and you find out about that the day before closing and your deal doesn't happen, you just wasted a year because you got nothing out of it. So what we learned in that business is we got to invest a lot of time to figure out whether we're going to be able to get the deal done before we say yes. And so we had to turn that around because we are basically in the success fee business. So we had to, we made lots of mistakes early in trying to build that business. And then finally, in the media business that we have, I think the, the interesting lesson there isn't to try and be just another purveyor of information, but to figure out what it is that you have that is insightful and in how to take advantage of that insight. And so everything that we publish, every conference that we have in Burl relates to something that's unique and presumably something that's insightful. Now, I'm going to take another just couple minutes and I'm going to give you a flash through the life sciences industry. We can spend as much time this as you want. It's an industry that's 30 some years old. We started it here in the Bay Area. I was involved in the very first companies. There are 5,000 companies today in this world, hundreds of products in the marketplace in a broad-based thing. We spend in this country 20% of our GDP on healthcare. You want to sell products into an expanding market, that 20% is going to $4 trillion by 2015. So we're going to double the $2 trillion we spend to $4 trillion in the next 10 years. And that, that growth, if you will, is driven by technology, an aging population, converting diseases into chronic care, AIDS, cancer, are now chronic care diseases. We don't, they don't kill people like they used to. We live with them. We're moving into a world of treating wellness or prevention and a world of predictive and personalized medicine. And so we're going to see dramatic change. And when you're building companies today, 
you need to have a sense of how that world is going to change. It's a big world today. Worldwide sales of Big Pharma are $700 billion. The biotech industry is already a $100 billion revenue-based business. So it's not like you've got a bunch of entrepreneurial companies out there who don't know what they're doing. The biotech industry is a very big industry today with $500 plus billion of market cap. Almost half of that in two companies, Genentech and Amgem, driven by an incredible scientific revolution that we started some 30 years ago with trying to understand genomics and the human genome and what's going on in us systematically. But interestingly enough, if you look at where innovation in the healthcare world is coming from, by the way, you guys can get copies of all my slides if you want, if they're relevant to you, just send me an email. But if you look at where innovation is coming from, innovation in the healthcare world is all coming from the small companies that we've started as opposed to the big companies. And so that's an exciting time. And the marketplace has recognized that. So the biotech industry's market cap today is larger than the top five pharmaceutical companies in the world combined. And so you're on the upswing in investing in our industry. The whole industry today is 2X Pfizer and Merck. So if you could buy Pfizer and Merck, all of Pfizer and Merck, or the industry, what would you rather buy if you were going to go out for 10 or 20 years? So as an investor, I would argue that big pharma, you ought to short big pharma and buy biotech. Why? Rising healthcare costs, patents, most of the big products in the market are coming off patent. Big pharma is dramatically reorganizing itself into a buy it rather than build it mode. Healthcare costs, as I said, going up dramatically. Interestingly enough, notwithstanding that $2 trillion of healthcare costs today, drugs are only 10% of the cost. So if you listen to all the dialogue that you read in the papers and hear on TV, the world has painted the pharma companies as the big problem in this healthcare thing. You could eliminate 100% of the drugs and you only take 10% of the cost of them. So that's actually the cheapest form of healthcare, not the most expensive, but they get all the noise. And the reason you get all the noise is you get this little white or purple pill and you're paying $10,000 or $100,000 per year of treatment. People say, wow, they're ripping it off. They forget that it may cost us a billion dollars before we ever see the first uh, customer. Where does biotech fit into all of this? It's interesting if you look quickly at the pharmaceutical world, it continues to spend more and more money. We're now spending $50 billion in the US, $60 billion worldwide on R&D and getting less for it. So if you said, where is the products that are being approved, you're getting fewer and fewer products approved with more and more spend. So we're now in biotech land selling into that equation. Big Pharma is not getting it done. And the real problem, if you think about industry for a minute, is that we have a one-size-fits-all world. That is to say, if you and I start a company today, what we're going to do is figure out the smallest possible population of patients to get our drug approved. So first we do it in phase one, we, we test for safety. That is, does it kill people? Then in phase two, you deal with efficacy, efficacy does it work? Then you do in phase three, you're trying to combine the both, do it in the smallest population possible because you're using my money to get there to get the drug approved. And what do we do then? We get that drug approved and we throw it over into the marketplace and what do we have? We have a highly variable patient population. And so we're moving today from defining disease by symptoms and by and large the practice of medicine up till now has been the practice of symptomology. We now understand disease from the standpoint of mechanism of action. That is to say, how does disease work? And we're moving from understanding cancer 
to understanding cancer is hundreds of different cancers defined by the heterogeneity of abnormal cell growth. And we're realizing that you and I as patients, while we're 99.99% common, the variability between us is what really counts. And so if you think about being tall or short or fat or skinny or male or female or Asian or Caucasian, the variability in us as a genetic makeup and as a, as a nature makeup has a lot to do with how we metabolize drugs or what works or what doesn't work. So we have this one-size-fits-all world dealing with a highly variable patient population. So we're moving right now from 2,000 years, if you will, of more or less universal treatment into, into the, for the first time, we can individualize treatment or personalize treatment for you and I based on our genetic makeup and other things. And it actually begins then to move us from not only personalizing medicine to being predictive. So we're going to be able to say that old Steve's going to get osteoporosis or I'm going to get Alzheimer's or you're going to get breast cancer or something. And once you're predictive, you can ultimately move into prevention. And when you're at prevention, you're treating the well as opposed to treating the sick. So in the world today, we're spending 20%, almost 25% of the world's GDP treating the 5% that are sick. Think of the opportunity to treat the 95% that are well. So in your world, not in my world, the opportunity to make money is gonna to be to treat the well on a predictive and preventative way. And so we have this massive change going on in the healthcare world, and I think it's important to try and recognize that. I'm gonna skip all the rest of this and just get to the back end for a minute. Well, let me go back here because I think there's one thing I need to tell you. <coughs> Sorry. Most people in the Silicon Valley think in the context of their tech, whoops, sorry, their technology. And um, I think you have to think about confluence for a minute. We know a lot about how we work as a biological system. We know a lot today about biomarkers and genomics and proteomics. And we've digitized biology so that it's now an all, a whole set of ATCs and Gs, so it's basically a digital science. But we've also built electronic health records at hospitals. We've, we've learned a lot about nanotechnology and miniaturization. We've learned a lot about how to image things and visualization, telecommunications. We can do telemedicine. We've improved power supply so we can embed things in it. So while most of you and most of my friends will start a company based on an individual piece of technology, you've got to understand how all of those technologies are going to be helpful in redefining healthcare. So don't get married to your little discovery. Lots of Nobel laureates are great scientists. This isn't a question of great Nobel laureate cutting-edge science. The question is, how do you take, if you will, a basket of technologies to change the solutions in the world today? So be very aware that you may have a great discovery, but that alone doesn't build a company. And the biggest issue that we deal with all day long is does that piece of science deserve a company? You as an entrepreneur believe that every piece of science deserves a company. That's not true. And so you have to ask yourself, what can I do with this that deserves a company to be built around it? So let me just then finish with a couple of uh, summary slides. So I developed over time a series of kind of Burl laws that I think are important. And by the way, if you want any of this stuff, you can have it. Um, I did a big deck for all of you. Ooh. 
you're going to get a lot here. So what are some lessons you can learn in entrepreneurship? I happen to grow up in Wisconsin, I think I mentioned that. Green Bay Packers were the dominant football team at the time. Vince Lombardi was the coach. No stars, just a bunch of guys who played football well together. You look at the Silicon Valley startups that succeed, and you'll find that in almost every case, there were a group of people who worked together as a team before they started the company, they spun out or whatever. They were more married to their teamness and their technology than they were to their employer. And so when you look across Silicon Valley startups and you try and understand entrepreneurship, you'll always find that those with a balanced team do well. I'm sure other people have come in here and told you that the things that we invest in are like a stool. You've got to have four legs. One is kind of science, one is manufacturing, one may be um, science or, or sales and marketing, one may be admin and finance. The legs of that stool are all the same length to get a decent foundation to build a company. But if one of them is real long and three of them are real short, you got a pretty wobbly stool. And so the things that I've learned in building companies are to invest in teams, not Nobel laureates. Teams make a big difference. Second thing is you've got to understand the marketplace. Only thing that matters is dominating a segment of the marketplace. And so ultimately, you will never succeed no matter what you do if you don't dominate some marketplace. Most of my friends are pretty ignorant about the marketplace. So we love our technology, we love our company, we love what we're doing, we're going to build our fortune around that technology. Forget that. Ask yourself, what's the marketplace and how does technology help me get there and understand that confluence? Because marketplace will ultimately be critical to you. Thirdly, everybody who walks into my office has a patent. Everybody has a technology. That's not the question. The question is, what are the barriers to entry? How do you prevent others from being in your business? What are the things that you can do to raise barriers of entry? So it isn't getting patents. That's a given. You've got to have something that's protectable. That has nothing to do with success. It's raising barriers to entry, and there's lots of ways to do that. As I indicated, in the life sciences business I live in, you've got to understand the capital markets because you're going to be capital market dependent for a decade. And interestingly enough, the way you get your money will dictate your strategy. If you went over to the business school, they would tell you, figure out your strategy, go finance your business. In our world, the financing will dictate the strategy. Let me give you a simple example. If you come to me and use my money, and you say, Steve, I want to lose money for a decade, I want to do this, but here's what I'm going to build, and I buy that, you have permission to do that. That then governs the strategy of what you do. If an alternative is we go public day one, we know that that company has to have quarter-to-quarter -quarter profitability, sales growth, all the things. So the determinant of the strategy is the way you did the financing. So what you're going to do in building a company is understand the agenda behind the capital because everybody's agenda. You can say everybody in the Silicon Valley and Sand Hill Road operates the same way. It's wrong. All of us have different appetites, different interests. But the way you choose your financing strategy will ultimately dictate your business strategy. And all that business school teaching that you may have or may have heard of is actually wrong in my industry, in this industry. And then lastly, I'll tell you a quick story. I helped a guy named Adam Osborne create Osborne Computer years ago. Osborne, you guys were not even in the womb when Osborne Computer came. But in the growth of the Silicon Valley, we had this company called Osborne Computer. 
that built a computer that was kind of like if you had Jeep built a computer, kind of heavy metal, three-inch screen, it was the forerunner of the laptop of today. Adam Osborne took that company from zero to 100 million in sales to zero in three years. I helped him do that. <laughs> now, where Adam failed was interesting. He clearly had the market. Everybody wanted a laptop. You have trouble today realizing we lived in a world without laptop computers, but we all did. So Adam built what was ultimately the dominant company in laptop computing. But what did he do wrong? So he had the Osborne 1, sold 100 million, took off. It was the hottest thing going. And what did he do? He announced the Osborne 2. A little bigger screen, a little more functionality. And what happened at that moment? Not one person bought another Osborne 1. They said, I'm going to wait for the Osborne 2. That's a better machine. The supply lines clogged up. The company folded. They never got the Osborne 2 to the market. The company was history. Strategy was right. Tactics was wrong. So people fail in our business because they fail tactically. They get the wrong money or the wrong money at the right, at the wrong, they get, don't get money at the right time. Tactics of success are far more important than strategy. So those are a couple lessons that may be helpful to you as you think about entrepreneurial success. Questions? Yeah. Sure, I'll try. Uh, early in your, in your career, you were exposed to a lot of different industries. Uh, how did you pick biotech as the one to bet your career on? Well, I'll tell you an interesting story. So I was a young auditor at the time involved in, in Arthur Young, and I was working with Cetus and Genentech and Alza and Amgem, and the managing partner at that time came in to me and said, Steve, what are you screwing around with this stuff for? And I looked at him, and I said, listen, this may not be important in your life, but it's going to be important in mine. I thought at that minute I was going to get fired. But I passionately believed that these companies, young, kind of insignificant at the time, were going to change healthcare, and that healthcare was going to be a dominant issue in the world. I was a young whippersnapper. I don't know why I believed that, but I passionately believed that and said, I'm going to devote my life to that. When I started Berlin Company, I built, remember, a big electronics business. I built a big high-tech business broadly, built a big service. I was involved in everything Ernst & Young did all over the world for everybody that manufactured things. When I started Berlin Company, I said, I'm only going to focus on life science companies. The reason I did that was, A, I had a passion for it, and B, it felt real good to go home at night, know that I spent all day trying to cure AIDS or cancer or do something good for society. It wasn't just making money on the Internet. So in this case, I believed passionately that this was going to be an important thing for the world, and I said, I'm going to kind of devote my life to making that happen. I could have been wrong. I mean, today, if you look at where the money's been made, here you've made tons of money in Google. The biotech companies haven't made that kind of money, but that's, we're in a little different business. Other questions? Yeah. Matthew LeBerry, pleasure to meet you. Uh, I've always been curious as to the challenges faced by the leaders of biotech companies. Uh, you know, say for example, there's a disease X in a third world country, and your company discovers the cure for this disease. What kind of challenges do you face personally knowing that you could just take this cure and just give it to them and solve this problem? Versus the business aspect, well, it costs billions of dollars to R&D and everything else, and you have to move forward with trying to sell it and this type of thing. Well, could you give us some insight as to the personal challenges you face with that kind of situation? 
So I was involved in something called the Out of the Box Group for the World Bank. So the World Bank pulled together a bunch of people, smart people, a year or so ago. Um, Patty Stonefer, who today runs the Gates Foundation, um, myself, the head of McKinsey, um, the head of the largest pharmaceutical company world, put us in a room, said, how do we solve the problem of diseases in the undeveloped world? If you look at diseases in the undeveloped world, you have massive diseases and no economics. So you got poor countries with poor people with high healthcare burden. So we figured out an answer to that. But the answer had to do with you had to create artificial market mechanisms to create the incentives for you and I as companies to want to solve that problem that then you could give away. So we had to get the World Health Organization or somebody else to basically put in incentives, we call them advanced purchase contracts, to tell us that there was a market there because if there was no market, you and I aren't going to start a company to solve that problem today. So that actually is what got the Gates Foundation into doing what they're doing today. And so we pulled that together. Patty and I did some of that. She now runs that. But that's a giant problem today because we in the business, you and I start a business today, you got to go where the market is. And the market isn't helping the undeveloped world with diseases that have enormous <coughs> burden. The other thing that's interesting about that is you can solve the disease problem. But if you don't solve the poverty problem and you don't solve the water problem and you don't solve the living conditions problem, some other disease just comes up. And so the problems in doing that are very big. So if you look at healthcare in the world today, the, the economics drive where we put our research dollar. And so you end up putting your research dollar in places where the economics are going to be big. But when we started the industry, AIDS, people laughed at us when we were dealing with AIDS. Oh, don't worry, that's never going to be a business. Today, AIDS drugs are some of the biggest business in the world. So most of the business of tomorrow are for markets that don't exist today. And so you can't do traditional market analysis and decide where the markets are and then build a product in there. The products that we're going to invent today are for markets that are zero today. And the question is, can we get product to the market and create a big market and create big demand? So all of that stuff you would normally do in a rational analysis, you can't do. Other questions? Yeah. Good evening. My name is Hari. Uh, I have a question specific to the venture capital business of uh, Berlin and Company. Okay. So uh, you just mentioned that it takes a lot of, lot of time for a uh, pharma or a biotech company to actually realize returns because it takes a lot of time, there's a fee approval, et cetera. So, and given that Berlin and Company makes a seed investment or an early stage investment in a company, how exactly do you think uh, uh, the point of where the fluff really is. How do you actually find out? Because you never really know about the product when it's going to come. You're going to make a seed investment. You don't really know whether the FDA is going to approve it. And, and after all that, you really have to know whether the market is going to buy it. So, so the question really is how do we make money in the venture business and life sciences? And the, the, the deck is stacked against us because A, it costs a lot of money, B, we don't really know what the regulatory burdens are or when the product's going to make it to market, and thirdly, we don't know how the market's going to react to it and how it's going to pay for it if at all. And if you take all the things I said about the changing marketplace, fundamentally, we're in deep yogurt because the world isn't going to pay the high prices it has historically paid for new drugs because we're going to encourage the spending on generic drugs. So as we try and rationalize the healthcare equation, decide who gets what and how we pay for it. The model that's worked for the last 20 or 30 years is very challenging. So I don't have a good answer as to what the formula is. What I can tell you is perceived value is more than real value. 
So if I can create a company today and I can get the world to perceive that we're going to create enormous value, I want to sell into that perceived value because the reality will never meet the expectation. Now that may sound kind of gross to you because I'm going to sell my hopes and dreams before they materialize. So the interesting thing about the venture business is we start relatively early and we're typically in the companies three to four to five years. We're not into them 20 years. So we're actually transient capital. And so what I want to do is take my knowledge and my capital and help companies to the level where the perceived value is the highest and get out. <coughs> That's called taking them public or selling them to big pharma before the real value becomes real because it probably won't meet the expectation. So I'm in the perceived value business. So what I try and do is figure out where we're going to build potential value, the things that we can do to build that perceived value and then do that. The other thing that remember about my business, which is kind of interesting, if you took a home here in, in uh, Menlo Park and you took that same home and you looked at it in London and you looked at it in Paris and you looked at it in, in um, Bangalore, that home would have a very different value proposition. The same size house would have a very different value. You can't move that around. And so, you know, here it's supply and demand. People think that biotech companies, if they're in San Francisco or they're in Tokyo or they're in Kuala Lumpur, would have the same value based on the same technology. That actually also isn't true. So one of the ways I can make money is what I would call global arbitrage, which is you want to get technology from places where they don't value it very high, and then I want to finance it in places where they kind of overvalue it. So if I can take technology here today that doesn't have a lot of value and finance it in Tokyo, I can make a lot of money because the perception is different. So we live in a world of massive capital market inefficiency and no global arbitrage. And so my theory is that if I'm reasonably smart in a highly inefficient marketplace, I ought to be able to figure out how to make money. Question? Trying to know where the puck is going. What do you think about the hype and hope of stem cells and regenerative medicine as a future market? Um, I'm passionate about that. I was very instrumental in getting Prop 71 passed in California. I run the major stem cell meetings in the world today. And I think stem cells will redefine medicine as we know it today. Regenerative medicine is, in fact, the future. Having said that, the timetable to get there is going to be longer and more expensive and more arduous than we think. And there's two concurrent phenomena going on in stem cells. One, we here in California and a few other places in the world, Harvard, are trying to figure out what these things are, how they work, how they differentiate, how they migrate, how they can be helpful to us. I gave a speech recently in Moscow at the International Russian whatever Federation of Biotech Companies. I was a keynote speaker. This is an international meeting. That means I came, everybody else was Russian. So I was the only, only international person. But if I got sick and went down to a local hospital, they'd have juiced me up with stem cells. So we have two parallel phenomena. We've got kind of basic discovery, what does it mean? And then you've got experimental science where in various places of the world they're juicing up lots of people with stem cells to see how they work. And the answer to your question is we're going to get developments at both ends. Some people are going to get out of their wheelchair and walk. We're not real sure why and how, but that'll be great. And at the other level, we're going to try and figure out the basic rule set that enables us to do that. But there is no question that stem cells and regenerative medicine will will um, transform everything we're doing in healthcare. The real question from my standpoint is the time frame. And ignore what we said when we got Prop 71 passed, and I'll tell you that story if you're interested, but the real question is how do you make money 
in that and in the time frame, and I think the time frames will be longer. We are not yet an investor in any stem cell company, although we've looked at hundreds. Last question. Yeah. I can't, I can't hear you. you. Can't really see your contact information on screen. Would you mind to read it? So my email is Steve at B C like Berlin Company, B hyphen C dot com. And if you send me an email, you can go to my website. We'll po post this on my website, so maybe you can pick it up. Well, I guess we won't post it on the website because it's got some private information. But um, if you send me an email, Steve at B C dot com or Burl at Burl dot com, we'll get it to you. Thanks. Um, how do you see Big Pharma changing their business model to take advantage of personalized medicine? So I skipped a slide in there that basically asks the question of what does Big Pharma do better than anybody else in the world? And you have to ask yourself, does Big Pharma do discovery better than anybody else in the world? And the answer is no, we do, small companies do. Do they do development better than anybody else in the world? The answer is no, they outsource that to the clinical research organizations. Do they do manufacturing better than anybody else in the world? No. Basically, the Indians, the Chinese, Eastern Europeans, other people do manufacturing cheaper, faster than traditionally we can do it in the US. Do they do sales better than anybody else in the world? And it's interesting because the Merck's and the Pfizer's used to have thousands of detailed people going out and calling on all the docs in the world because the docs were the gatekeepers. Now, the question is what does Medicare pay for? Within three years, Medicare will pay for 80% of the drugs used in the United States. You wanna get your drugs sold, you gotta sell it to Medicare. So how many people do you need in this detailed sales force to call on Medicare? Maybe only one. And so if you look at big pharma today, it's disintegrating because all of those things that pharma has historically done well are no longer relevant. So my answer to what big pharma becomes is global distributors of products. And they're gonna unload, if you will, all the infrastructure and become global distributors. So if you're the president of Lilly today and you get a drug approved, the only thing you've gotta do is figure out how to get that drug to every patient in the world who can benefit before your patents expire, before somebody else has got a better product. So you've gotta to migrate to a global distribution model and you'll disintegrate everything else. So if you look at the pharma industry today, what's happening in big pharma is that we're taking and smooshing all the big companies together. And we combine two giant companies, we fire everybody in the middle of the company, we call that profitability for a few years, it looks great. But in the end, they're gonna basically unload the infrastructure and become global distributors. Very different business. Great. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much.